Okay, Jesse, I still cannot get over last week's survivor story. That was absolutely unbelievable. What are you going to do to top it this week? When a volunteer firefighter extinguishes a burning jaguar, the car, not the animal, in the (laughs) desert. (laughs) Thanks for specifying. He makes a horrifying discovery that sends authorities down a rabbit hole of fitness, fame, drugs, sex, steroids, and of course, murder. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about jealousy, rage, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Thank you so much, guys, for all of those ratings and reviews this week. You are all my favorite people, to be honest. You really are. You really are. Just absolutely my favorite. You know, my kids were kind of trying me this week a little bit, so I'm going to give you guys the number one spot. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Okay. We have got a rockin' true crime tale for you guys today. It is a rocking story, and it features some rock-hard bodies. So the sources I use this week, Andy, (sighs) is the book Killer Bodies by Michael Fleeman. Again, with Michael Fleeman, we are huge devotees over here. (laughs) I also listened to episode 21 of Crime in Sports, which is the Small Town Murder Guys. They are phenomenal. Highly recommend. And there is a 48 Hours mystery called Vegas Heat about this episode. I actually found it on YouTube. So you can just type it into YouTube and you'll find that. So those are my sources. I think we should just get rolling. 100%. It was a freezing cold early morning in December of 2005 on a dusty road in the desert, about a half hour outside of Las Vegas, when firefighter Dick Draper pulled his truck up to a bright red Jaguar that had been set on fire. Just 11 days from Christmas, and the luxury car was burning brighter than any of the festive lights in the already sparkling mecca of hedonism. Don opened his truck door to feel the invasive chill of the cold 4.30 in the morning air, as well as fingers of heat coming off the blaze. He was pleased to see that the flames appeared to be shooting from the back of the car and actually moving towards the hood, which is good because that's away from the gas tank. Seedy people burning their vehicles in the desert for insurance money is a pretty common occurrence on the outskirts of Vegas, so common that Dick had decided to answer the fire call all by himself with just his truck of water and foam. Whoa. Isn't that pretty badass? Yeah. It would take the single volunteer firefighter over an hour and two trips back for water to finally extinguish the massive fire and reveal the charred skeleton of a once beloved roadster. Dick went to work pouring foam and water over any remaining hot spots, knowing that the tow truck that was coming could not take the car away while it was still burning. 
As he poked and flooded, he realized one stubborn spot would not stop smoking. He got a flashlight and a pole and began poking into the smoke to see what the heck was going on when all of a sudden, the flashlight beam revealed a charred human head as well as a blackened hand wrapped in the burned remnants of a blanket. Wow. Dick immediately called dispatch and the police arrived to be plunged into a mystery that turned up some very interesting suspects and mind-boggling backstories. At the center of the crime was a famous bodybuilding couple and their beautiful young assistant. Investigators would have to wade through reports of drug-fueled sex romps, roid rage, jealousy, national championships, and a deadly love triangle to pinpoint who the victim was and who their killer or killers were as well. So today on Love Murder, Andy, I'm gonna pump you up (laughs) talking about the case of Melissa James, Greg Titus, and Kelly Ryan. Greg Titus. I mean, that just sounds like a bodybuilder name. I think if you're born with the name Craig Titus, you have to be yes. a bodybuilder. Yes. There's no other choice. Fate, it's just- yeah, fate has decided for you. I was shocked to find out that was his real birth name. Yeah. That's just has to be. Yeah. And so we're going to start with the biggest, bulkiest muscles first, <laughs> which is Craig Titus. Mr. Titus. Mr. Titus here. Craig was born on January 14th, 1965 to a Greek father named Michael who dug tunnels for infrastructure, which apparently is very dangerous. I mean, you're down there, you're blowing stuff up, you're digging for like subways and sewer pipes, that sort of thing. And a homemaker mother named Sandra. Craig grew up like a pretty average to small guy, actually. He grew up just outside of Detroit, Michigan. And by his junior year in high school, he was only five foot six, 130 pounds. Oh, yeah. So he was not like a a big buff cake to begin with. He wrestled as a lightweight and he did pretty well in high school. He would later claim that he won a state wrestling championship, but author Michael Fleeman could find absolutely no record of this victory. So he may be a little bit of a liar. It was while working out in the weight room for wrestling that Craig actually found his true passion, which ended up being bodybuilding. I went down a rabbit hole researching bodybuilding, Andy. It's fascinating. I'm not going to make you listen to, you know, my thesis on the history of bodybuilding as a sport, but I thought it was really interesting Because all of the weightlifting and the very, very intense conditioning and the insane, you know, nutrition diet type stuff that they have to do, the sole purpose of it is just sculpting your body. That's it. So it's more about sculpting than like mass or is it more about? It's more like having the right mass in the right areas. And some of these competitions, especially the ones I think we're going to be talking about today, do have some sort of like element where you have to do like a one-handed push-up or something. But for most of these competitors, it's just like looking good, looking good with the muscles as opposed to other professional sports where the reason you work out and lift weights is to, you know, run faster, jump higher, throw farther. It's like for a purpose. So it's really interesting. There's this intense, intense sport that's just about looking good. Well, yeah. And that's subjective. Very subjective. Because I like, I can't even sometimes like look at like real boofy people. You don't want to, you don't want to like a nice buff cake in a man thong (laughs) slathered with some Hawaiian tropic. It's not going to do it for you. I can't. 
I, it's greasy just not my, not my cuppa. Well, that makes sense because you're not a my vegan. Cuppa Joe. <laughs> <laughs> she likes doesn't like beef. Doesn't like beefcake. Makes sense. This track. Yeah. No, I I'm not into the like massive muscles. Are you? I don't think so. <laughs> I, don't, I really have to stop and think about it. Like I feel like people who are judging these contests would have to be like really into. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're definitely not the audience for that, for sure. It is for people that have experience in bodybuilding that are super, you know, gym oriented. It's really interesting. I'm going to talk about my inside knowledge of bodybuilding and fitness competitions later because... You're so wise. Shout out to my absolutely incredible personal trainer, Carly because she actually is a fitness competitor. So she gave me some like really interesting little factoids about what it means to compete in this type of industry. So fun. Super, super fun. So we'll get to that later. Um, But yeah, it's really interesting because it's kind of like this combination of art and science. Like your body is your canvas. And the science part is finding the right cocktail of gym time, nutrition, and supplements to turn you into, you know, a muscle machine. So modern bodybuilding began in the late 19th century and became increasingly popular in the 1950s and 60s in the United States, specifically in California, and even more specifically in Santa Monica and Venice Beach area of Los Angeles. The original Muscle Beach was in Santa Monica, and bodybuilding found its mecca at the Gold's Gym in Venice. Yep. Is it still pretty buffy? People still like go there. I mean, Venice is kind of not great right now because of the homeless situation. So I don't know if that's affecting that Mm -hmm. at all. I haven't like been over there on the beach for a while, but it was before COVID, it was still very active. Yeah. So that is also where Arnold Schwarzenegger worked out Mm -hmm. after moving to the States, becoming the most famous bodybuilder in the world, as well as obviously an actor, movie star, and much later, the governor of California. Uh, so, Andy, didn't you tell me that you watched his 1977 documentary about pumping? And it's yeah, hilarious. It called, like, pump you up or something? It's or is called it- Pumping Iron. Pumping Iron. It's amazing. Dan and I watched it a few years ago and it's incredible. And I know that he says, there's like this clip I watched on YouTube where he's talking about the blood rushing to your muscles and he's like talking about what the pump is. And he went on to say, Having a pump is like having sex. I train two, maybe three times a day. (laughs) Each time I get a pump, it's great. I feel like I'm coming all day. (laughs) It's exactly what he says, Jesse. It's exactly exactly what he says. says. That is not exactly how he sounds, forgive me. But he does say (laughs) that pumping is like coming all day. Now, I was saying, uh, you know, giving Carly a shout out, and I don't mean to brag, guys, but I am getting pretty swole. <laughs> and, and that's also not true because you can't see me, but it's, it's sad. But I have been lifting weights, and I got to say, it does not feel like coming. <laughs> no. <laughs> After high school, Craig worked with his father, excavating the earth deep below us to make way for tunnels for a few years and moved to Houston in the 1980s to train at a bodybuilding gym. While there, he met and married his first wife, Susan Kathleen Bell, when he was only 20 years old and she was 26. Little is known about this early marriage other than the fact that the couple welcomed boy-girl twins named Aaron and Ashley in 1988. 
But unfortunately, they lost little Aaron to sudden infant death syndrome when he was uh, only six months old. No, that's kind of old for SIDS. I mean, they say that you are not out of the woods until they're a year old, really. So no. crazy. Sorry if you're a new mother. That terrified I mean, I would have kept Echo in the snoo for a year if I needed to, but she... <laughs> She I wouldn't. Didn't. She wouldn't sleep in it with her helmet on once we got the helmet. So we were out of options. I kept Gus there till like seven and a half months. Like his head was touching the top <laughs> and his toes were touching the bottom. Because <laughs> I was like, "This is the safest way you could sleep. You're staying in here." <laughs> oh my god. So yeah, that is very unfortunate, and the loss appeared to take a toll on the couple because they ended up divorcing that same year. Yeah. Hard to get over. While Craig was grieving personally, he did begin to blossom professionally around this time. In 1988, Craig entered the Houston Bodybuilding Championship as a middleweight, and he ended up winning not just his class, but the whole competition. And this was actually a big deal because the heavyweights were always the one to bring home the championships in general. So the fact that a total rookie middleweight took the whole competition was actually a big deal. Craig doubled down on his weightlifting and nutrition regimen, and he started an incredible amateur career. He scooped up a couple more middleweight titles before he beefed up to a heavyweight. At this point, he was now 5'8 and 270 pounds. Oh my gosh, that is my height. And like 1 million pounds more than you. In the early to mid-90s, Craig scooped up a ton of wins, was on the cover of a bunch of muscle and fitness magazines, and became known as quite Uh the ladies' man. He famously dated a Playboy fitness model for a little while, but mostly had a revolving door of bodacious (laughs) babes. Craig differed from most bodybuilders in the way that he was loud, crass, and liked to trash talk. At this point in time, at least, bodybuilding was more of a genteel sport. They said it was more akin to like being in a pageant than being like some sort of professional wrestler. Everyone backstage was very kind to each other. You weren't supposed to like diss people, you know, in publications. And he would be like talking to muscle magazines or to the judges. And he'd be like, oh, that guy's pecs are shit, you know, like stuff like that. Yeah, (laughs) which was very much not done in the industry, at least at this time. I don't know if it's changed at all, but yeah, because of the girls, the bad attitude and some rumors of hard partying, Craig soon got the reputation as the bad boy of bodybuilding. Now, this reputation was solidified in late 1994 when Craig was arrested in connection with the sale of 390 tablets of ecstasy. Oh my God, that is so much ecstasy. (laughs) So much ecstasy. A drug shipment had been intercepted between Houston and Louisiana, and Craig's fingerprints had been found on one of the baggies that contained the ecstasy. (laughs) Not good. Not good, Mr. Titus. Mm-mm. At his hearing, he claimed that he was only the middleman. He had simply connected the seller of the ecstasy with the buyer who was receiving. Yeah, so wouldn't that Louisiana. make you the main dealer? He said, <laughs> "Sorry, I'm confused." <laughs> That's what a drug dealer is. Is somebody? I'm not who- involved. I simply connected the seller to the buyer. I'm just the middleman. 
It's a sir. That is what salespeople are. That's <laughs> that's it's, called being a drug dealer. That's called selling the drugs. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. Yes. He also said, so they were like, he was trying to say he did like ship them. Like it wasn't him who personally shipped it. And they're like, well, how did your <laughs> fingerprints get on the baggie? And he's like, you know, the real dealer was at my house. He must have taken a Ziploc bag from my kitchen that already had my prints on it. And you that know, is how- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this excuse in the future for sales. Like when I have to like talk to my designers and sales aren't good, I'm going to be like, you know, I'm just the one connecting the seller and the buyer. I'm just the middleman. It's not, yeah. Not my fault here. Yeah. So he claimed to the judge that he was not actually a recreational drug user. And that the only reason he had gotten involved was that the person in Louisiana who wanted the ecstasy was actually his steroid dealer. And in order to get his steroids, which he said he needed for his professional bodybuilding career, the guy asked him to get ecstasy, which I guess was, there was a lot of ecstasy in Houston around this time. So he's like, I just kind of had to be the middleman and do this deal so I could get my steroids. And the judge was like, well, you shouldn't really be doing yeah. steroids either. So, But I do steroids professionally. <laughs> Not recreationally. So he ended up making a deal and he helped the feds catch some bigger fish up the druggy food chain. During sentencing, the judge told Craig that she had a son about his age and she understood that he felt like he was doing something for his career because he kept bringing up like his career and how he was like trying to keep his body pristine for bodybuilding. And she was like, you know what? I'm inclined to go easy on you. This is also his first offense. And she said that she believed that his debt to society would be better served by doing community service outside of jail rather than costing the taxpayers money in jail. So he was sentenced to eight months in a halfway house, eight months following that in home confinement and three years supervised release, including 300 hours of community service. He was also forbidden from possessing or taking any controlled substances. The judge ordered him to watch a video on the dangers of steroid use and to be drug tested monthly. Yeah, he's not going to like that. Judge Doherty said in conclusion, I'm giving you the opportunity to make a life, Mr. Titus. Don't misunderstand. If you test dirty, I'm putting you back in jail. By all accounts, Craig did keep his head down. He did his community service and he worked out. In fact, he got into the best darn shape of his life. At his very first competition since his conviction, the 1996 NPC USA Men's Championships in Long Beach, He even won first place and officially went pro. He dedicated the victory to his son, Aaron. Hmm. The bodybuilding community was shocked. Due to his frequent drug testing, everyone assumed that Craig was competing as a natural bodybuilder. And they call people who compete without steroids natural bodybuilders. So are steroids at this time like legal for some people competing? Totally legal. Okay. And get this, they are still legal in many of these divisions and competitions. Stop. Uh-huh. So you just choose whether you want to be like a uh, natural or roid? Yes, that's 100% the way that they do it. So- Essentially, what happened was that in the 90s, I think actually in 1990, they were trying to make bodybuilding 
an Olympic sport. And the Olympics were like, maybe we'll consider it, but we do not allow drugs of any kind, especially not steroids for any Olympian. So we know that bodybuilders use steroids. You can't do that if you're going to be an Olympic sport. So one of the biggest, if not the biggest bodybuilding competitions is Mr. Olympia. And in 1990, they tried to go all natural. They're like, everybody has to test clean because we are potentially going to be in the Olympics and we want to see how it goes. Yeah. And they only did that for one year because supposedly everyone hated it. The competitors hated it. The spectators hated it. Like no one was coming. There wasn't crowds. People were like, ugh, these guys are just like kind of muscly. I want like muscle monsters. Ew. (laughs) Andy, this is not for you. (laughs) Like when you can see the veins and stuff, it's just really, Yeah, but that's what they want. I know, I know. There's some pumped up look. I know. Yeah, so there are divisions now that are completely steroid-free. So Carly competes in a division that does not allow steroids. And she said that it's really interesting how they test. They actually make all the competitors do a lie detector test. What? (laughs) Yeah, so before the competition, everyone has to take a polygraph saying that they are not on any sort of performing enhancing drugs. And then if they win... They basically get the trophy on stage, walk off stage, and they're like, here's a cup, pee in it. And if anything comes back, then they take the trophy away. That is so dramatic. (laughs) So dramatic. I wonder if they like thought that like polygraphing everyone is like cheaper or like less invasive than testing everyone. Well, and I think a lot of people have figured out how to pass a piss test. Oh, that's probably why. So that's why they do it like as soon as you get off stage. Because if you do anything to pump you up for the big day, then it's still in your system. Yeah. Clever. Yeah. So clever. But yeah, still to this day, you know, most of the big shows still allow some type or they just look the other way with steroid use. Yeah. So it was really interesting that he won this competition because they knew that he had this court order. So there's no way he was using steroids. And he won against all the other, you know, inflated juicer guys, you know. (laughs) It made Craig's comeback all the more impressive. And he scored four major magazine covers that very same year. I mean, he was on the cover of like Muscle and Fitness and the Iron Man and all of these like crazy pumped up magazines. So he was set to make over six figures his first year going pro. Okay. Wow. Which is a lot. Yeah. Because you would get paid for appearances. There's cash money at these competition cash prizes. And you also get really lucrative endorsement deals for like supplements and, you know, protein powder and that sort of thing. Okay. So this sounds pretty impressive, right? Yes. Well, not really because Craig was still on the roids. He was so shameless that he was, I mean, this is so bizarre to me. He was pissing dirty and just giving it to them. He's like, what are you going to do about it? He literally was just giving them his roided out pee. And it took them six months to realize like, I guess it was backlogged or for some reason the courts didn't get the reports until six months later. So for six months, he submitted dirty pee and nobody stopped him. So finally, they're like, this guy has a shit ton of steroids in his pee. So for reference, (laughs) they can tell by the amount of testosterone in your body. Okay. And in 2006, a cyclist was kicked out of the Tour de France for basically having a testosterone ratio of four to one. Craig's was 50 to one. 
The next month, it was even higher. The second highest level of testosterone the lab had seen that year in over 700 samples. Oh, my God. Furthermore, he was having insane fits of temper, even attacking a competitor at Gold's Gym. Oh, my God. Sir. Yeah. So this is all a problem, like I said, not because of the competition, not because they're going to do anything about it because they totally allowed steroid use. It's a problem because he had a court order to not do this. And the judge said she was going to throw him in jail if he pissed dirty. Oh, my God. Yeah, she was pissed. Judge Doherty gave him a smackdown. And Titus and his attorney tried to argue that he totally wasn't using steroids. Oh, my God. He said, this is, listen to this story. What happened was he had been a really, really, really big steroid user. They had talked about that in his last hearing. He wasn't on them anymore, but he was left with scar tissue all over his body where he had been shooting up repeatedly with these steroids. So he said in an effort to get rid of the scar tissue that was had like hardened and was leaving lumps on his perfect physique, he had engaged in massage therapy and that the massage therapist was aggressively like kneading the the scar tissue area to release it. And when she released it or he released it, the leftover steroids that was in the scar tissue just went into his bloodstream. Oh, I love these lies. These are like, these are really good. (laughs) He is a very creative liar. So the judge, though, can see right through this The judge was like, you are so full of shit (laughs) because they had the doctors from the lab come and they were like, the level of steroids in his body is so extreme. There's no way it was from released old steroids in scar tissue. Every doctor interviewed was like, no, the only expert witness, and I say expert with a big eye roll for Craig was a PhD in zoology who said that it was theoretically possible. That's it. That was the biggest scientific medical expert they could find that kind of said it was maybe a thing. The judge was not having it. In fact, she made a point to call... The doctor, the PhD in zoology, Mr. instead of doctor. Oh my God. In her summons. She's like, yeah, I'm not having what Mr. So-and-so is saying over there. So she sentenced Craig to two years in prison because of this. Yeah. I mean, she did warn him. She absolutely did. It feels harsh for a drug offense, like just that he tested positive, but it's not really for testing positive for steroids. It's for the whole drug selling thing because she said, I'm giving you this chance to be in a halfway house and get to still do your competitions and you're the one who screwed this up. Yeah, so this is a big bummer for Craig, not only because he had been at the top of his career when he screwed up so badly and had to go back to prison, but he had also just laid eyes on the woman of his dreams only a couple weeks before. While attending the Women's Fitness America pageant with some fellow bodybuilders, Craig had fallen in love at first sight with one of the competitors, 23-year-old All-American Kelly Ryan. Kelly was known as Flyin' Ryan for her gravity-defying jumps and gymnastic dance routine. That day, even though she only finished sixth in the competition, she received the loudest ovation and caught the eye of the famous Craig Titus. So. 
Apparently, he did try to talk to her backstage, but she was with her parents and he couldn't really find a good way to break in, especially because he wanted to hit on her. Yeah. So he decided that he was going to hit up some of their mutual friends. Obviously, it's a close community in the bodybuilding fitness world and see if he could score some sort of intro. But before he could make that happen, he had to take a little vacation at the state pen. So while Craig is cooling his heels in lockup, let's talk about Kelly. Kelly Ryan was born on July 10th, 1972, and grew up pretty much all over the U.S. due to her father's job as a marketing professional for Ford Motors. Kelly was incredibly athletically talented from a very early age. When the family was living in Texas during her elementary school years, Kelly was actually selected to train for the Olympic gymnastic team under legendary gymnastics coach, Bella Caroli. Yes. <laughs> yes. Who, Andy, you know, because you were a young person in gymnastics. I met Bella. Did you? Were yeah. you almost considered for that? No, like, I, what happened was when I was young, they told my mom that I could very much be on the path for the Olympics. And my mom specifically kept me in this one class for like four years so that I wasn't on that trajectory because she wanted me to like not train so badly. Yeah, it's very, very, very harsh. And for you guys who don't know, Bella Caroli is one of the most famous gymnastic coaches of all time. I mean, he trained Mary Lou Retton. He trained Carrie Strug. The Magnificent Seven. That was yes, the, the Magnificent they, Seven. Yep. And Nadia Kamenich. So yeah, he is a very big deal, but he's also really harsh. I'm glad you weren't trained by him. No, I did have another Russian coach though, who was also a Vladimir. Very intense. Yeah, Vladimir Cherkov. And he was so intense too. I remember my first meet, I was like, Vladimir, what are you going to do if I fall off the beam? And he's like, don't fall off the beam. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, you won't even tell me. Like, I just knew I was going to have like the worst conditioning regiment the next week if I messed up and I was terrified of the beam. Oh, did you just get too tall for gymnastics? Is that what happened? No, I didn't grow until I quit. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> that's, so that's what happens. They're not just naturally short people. They just no, stop no, growing. It's, from, it's like from the way that you are constantly pounding into the ground and like conditioning that you just don't grow. That's why I had to wear a back brace was because I grew too fast right when I quit. It was like right during a growth spurt and I quit gymnastics and I grew like eight inches one year and got severe scoliosis. That is so, so crazy. Yeah. I did not know that. I thought you yeah. I thought you were too tall to be a gymnast. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that you just started growing after you stopped. And I did it two years after. I did, I did it in two years in high school, like after I wore the back brace. So you can still do it when you're tall. It's a lot harder, but you're, yeah, you like your growth is stunted when you're training that much. Wow. Yeah. So this is what Kelly said about that. When I was nine, he was training me for the Olympics for the years ahead. I was about two age groups behind Mary Lou Retton. He always started us really, really young. And that's pretty much when all the high pressure was on. We trained before elementary school, after elementary school, all day on the weekends. That's so intense. So when her father was promoted to a new position in South Carolina, Around this time, Kelly was 13, her parents gave her the option of giving up the Olympic dream and moving with the family to South Carolina or staying with another gymnastics family and living with them and continuing to train with Bella Caroli. 
But that's so crazy. I would never be separated from my 13-year-old, but that was the lifestyle, huh? I think it's still a lifestyle. If you start training like at eight, which is normal, then that's your path. You're going to be traveling the world in like competing anyway. So it's like you're going to stay and learn. home anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be training with the best. She decided to go with her family and to stop training at this point. And she said it was a big part of that was that she was so stressed already. She was a 13-year-old kid who was riddled with ulcers from the stress. Oh, my God. It was pretty bad. And you'll come to see that Kelly is very much a perfectionist. So that type of mentality paired with those types of coaches and the intense pressure, I can imagine, was a pretty bad combination or good combination if you're somebody (laughs) that wants performance based on how things end up, not how devastating it is to the person's soul and body, how they get there, you know? Yeah. 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 So she kind of like you said, when you quit, you grew and you had more of a normal lifestyle. That happened to Kelly as well. When she moved and she got to go to high school in a different place, she now could try any sport she wanted and she was good at everything. She did soccer, volleyball, basketball. She was on the swim team and she was just like the best at almost everything. But where she really shined was in cheerleading because, you know, you use all of those gymnastic skills in cheerleading. And it was during weight training sessions for cheerleading that she fell in love with the idea of bodybuilding just like Craig had while he was wrestling. Yep. Kelly got a cheerleading scholarship to University of South Carolina, where she also captained the dance team. After graduation, she tried out to be a Laker girl, or I don't know whether she actually tried out or what happened. It just said that she went to LA wanting to be a Laker girl and it just didn't really work out. After that didn't work out, she decided to enter fitness competitions in order to try to make a career as a professional bodybuilder and fitness model. She scored first place out of 13 at her first competition in South Carolina, and she met an influential coach named Keith Kephart, who took her on as a client. And this is what Keith had to say about young Kelly. One of the other trainers just sort of introduced us, and Kelly is one of those people that you just immediately like. She had it all. She had the work ethic. She had the mentality. She was driven. And she pushed when people would normally shut down, quit, too much, can't do it, but not her. She had great tenacity. She loved the challenge. She would not back off. And yet she had the genetic capability muscular-wise and physique-wise for that to take place. She's probably one of the best athletes I've ever trained. Wow. In the 90s, women's bodybuilding competitions had different components. So there was the posing and general physique part, a dance or gymnastics program, as well as a few mandatory strength moves like a one-handed push-up. Kelly was above par on all of the actual athletic stuff. Like there was no one that came close to her in the like dance, gymnastics, strength stuff at all. Any of the performance-based stuff, she knocked everybody out of the park. They even have her, you can see videos. I think there's some on YouTube and they did use one on the 48 Hours Mystery of her like jumping and it's insane. She's like jumping up and she's getting like major air, just springing like as if it looks like she's on a trampoline and she's just on the floor, you know? Yeah, yeah. Super duper powerful, but she was 5'3", and her physique was more like that of a powerful gymnast than a, like, tall, V-tapered bodybuilder in a way. So Kelly could outwork anyone, but you can't 
really outwork your own physique. So this is where she would find a little bit of a problem in the industry. And she really did try her hardest. I mean, there's ways, you know, I was talking to Carly about this. There's ways that you can like build your shoulders and like your lats and stuff to create that visual look. Of course. And she tried. I mean, she absolutely did. She worked out so hard and ate the crazy diet that these bodybuilders have to eat. And she got herself down to less than 4% body fat. Whoa. Which is insane. I mean, for reference, a healthy woman's body fat should be somewhere between 25 and 31%. Yeah, I think your body fat has to be like above 12 to even get your period. Yes, absolutely. It does. And we need fat on our body, women especially. Men can go down a lot lower than we can. Yeah. We, we need yep. it for biological reasons, you know, to keep us healthy and to get your period. And even athletes are usually between 14 and 20%. So being less than 4% body fat is absolutely insane. Well, her hard work paid off in November of 1996 when she placed first at the Fitness America Pageant Championships, which aired on ESPN. And the prize money from that championship was enough for her to live on for an entire year. Wow. Yeah. She won a whole bunch of other titles, culminating in the top prize in 1998 at the NPC Team Universe Nationals, which officially made her a ranked professional at that point. And I guess going pro means that you have more opportunities. You can get into all of the the biggest and best competitions internationally. You're going to get on magazine covers. And like I said, you can cash in on lucrative endorsement deals. The following year, Craig was sprung from prison and mutual friends arranged for Kelly to attend his belated birthday party. He single-mindedly pursued her. He had never forgotten about her on stage and obviously <laughs> he had two years to think about it. Yeah. And so he, when he got out, the first thing he wanted to do was see her once more. And she did end up coming to this party and she was made very aware that he was interested in her. But I don't know whether she was actually disinterested in him or she just played some very convincing hard to get because it took him a while to wear her down. Okay. He said it was because he had a bad reputation. Like, you know, he'd just gotten out of jail. He was kind of a jerk in these competitions. Yeah. And so she was a really good girl and that image was just not right for her, you know? But there was something very charming about Craig. He was disarming and people said that he could seem like a lot if you didn't know him. But once you got to know him, he would do anything for his friends and family. He was really funny. He was very outgoing. And he did win her over to the point where she agreed to be friends with him. But pretty soon that friendship turned into romance. The bodybuilding world was collectively shocked by this new couple. Kelly was considered the reigning princess of fitness at the time. She was young, sweet, seemingly innocent. And Craig was, of course, this bad-tempered ex-con. Their fitness pals summed it up to Michael Fleeman as follows. Everyone went kind of, whoa. I mean, Kelly was quiet, kind of respectful. It was like, here we go again. One of these nice girls with the bad boys, Craig the womanizer, the convicted felon. Everybody was stunned, says bodybuilding journalist Ron Harris. Craig had this reputation for going through women like crazy and having a temper and threatening people and being really violent. And she had nothing but a really sparkling reputation as this nice Southern girl. Everybody was freaking out about why they had gotten together. Oh my God. 
Yeah. But once she was in with him, she was hooked. I mean, she went all in. So, yeah, soon after they got serious, Craig began a campaign with Kelly's dad to get Mr. Ryan to give his blessing so that Craig could propose. Whoa, moving fast. He moved very fast. And (laughs) I guess Kelly's dad was just as hard to convince as she had been. So it took him a little while to get the father's blessing. But eventually he did. So thus, in spring of 2000, Craig proposed to Kelly at Del Frisco's Steakhouse in Santa Monica. Oh, my goodness. Yes. And the couple married on June 6th of the same year at the Little White Chapel in Las Vegas. Okay. (laughs) Kelly was really on an upswing in her career, but Craig was faltering now. Since his return, he was having a hard time getting back up to that first and second place, and he was finishing more in like sixth, seventh, and eighth. Was he doing roids still? Oh, absolutely. Oh, and he was still getting sixth. Yeah. I I think also they say that at a certain point of doing steroids, it affects your body in a different way, where I think if you overdo it, you can end up having a kind of like pudgy middle area, like you're, you know, swollen. Okay. And that was what was happening. He was having a hard time controlling his midsection and it was just a little bit bigger than it should be. And there was one competition they talked about where his belly kind of like flopped out, you know, like everyone's closing and all of a sudden it kind of just like popped out. And everyone's like, what is going on with him? So I think that maybe he had been over abusing the steroids. You think? Something was wrong with his cocktail. Let's just say that. So she's kind of on the rise. He's starting to come down. He's also getting older at this point. Yep. And so it's kind of a star is born moment here where when they first met, when he saw her at that competition, she was getting six and she was like 23 brand new on the scene. Yep. He came out of jail. She's on the rise. Now she's like really skyrocketing and he is on the decline and he's not really the the big fitness guy getting, you know, four magazine covers a year anymore like he used to be before he went to jail. I mean, jail will also like do that too, you know. Jail, it's, it's very hard to keep your physique yeah. in jail, I would imagine, because the food that you're being fed, he's not getting his special like creatine shakes in jail. No, and I'm sure it's hard as a publicist to get him on the cover of stuff when he, of magazines and everything, you know. Oh, absolutely. Out, fresh absolutely. out of jail for being a drug dealer. Yeah. So at this point, people are even more mystified by this marriage because she is tying herself to what seems like a sinking ship when she has so much promise. Ron Harris said that the marriage made absolutely no sense. Quote, it was like she was hypnotized or something. Oh, no. But as the community watched, it did seem like the marriage blossomed into something relatively endearing. It became obvious that the two cared very deeply about one another and supported one another through all of the high highs and low lows that comes with this sort of business. In 2000 and 2001, Kelly began to have her own career hiccups. She was always favored to win every competition that she was going into, and she had in the past but she was still supposed to be like the number one girl. But all of a sudden she started getting second all the time. Huh. All the time, like every competition second. And there was one woman that kept beating her. Her name was Susie Curry. I could see why I looked her up. She's cute. So she was beating her regularly at this point. And it was just getting really frustrating because everyone would be like, I think today's Kelly Ryan's day. And then 
It was always the bridesmaid, never the bride reputation. Perhaps taking advice from her win-at-any-cost husband who took no issue using whatever he could to get ahead, Kelly began altering her appearance through plastic surgery. No. It was reported that she sunk over $40,000 into the work, which is about $65,000 in today's money. That is That's so much plastic surgery. of changes. It appeared that she got her eyes, nose, Oh, you lips, can't fuck with the eyes. Cheeks and breast done. She looks like two different people. You'll see in the pictures and you guys will see when I post on Instagram. She really doesn't look the same at all. And it's weird. It's not, I wouldn't say that it jacked up her face. It just made her look like a totally different person. The one thing that was pretty atrocious was the lips. Some of the bodybuilding people in Michael Fleeman's book commented that she looked like Daffy Duck and oh, they no. went from they went from non-existent to overly large and plumped up and somebody said in the book that they saw her at a competition after she got the work done and she couldn't even speak properly like she was still figuring out how to talk with these gigantic lips and like if you do everything i imagine it like changes the whole way that you speak and make expressions and yeah, so I think that what we find attractive has always differed from probably the intense insular world of bodybuilding. But also even within that world, it seems like the norm of what they find attractive and how they judge it is changing, which I think is good. That seems healthy. Yes. Unfortunately, all of those changes did not help Kelly get that number one spot. She was still... Getting number two. And others would speculate later that the modifications weren't just done for her career, but for her personal life as well. Craig was known to have a wandering eye and everyone who knew them had hoped that good girl Kelly was going to be a positive influence on the reformed player who he did really seem to be absolutely head over heels for her. So everyone was like, this might be it. This might be the woman that tames him and makes him a better person. But it didn't really seem like it was going that direction. And in fact, it seemed like Craig was a very bad influence on Kelly. Okay. Which is always the case. It's like they always, like, you know, when you're in school and you're the good student and you're doing everything right and they're like, we're going to put the the bad kid that distracts everyone next to you so that you can be a good influence. And instead, like the good kid just gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> That's a so, lot easier of a, of a influence a than the other way around. <laughs> exactly. And that's basically what happened. Everyone was like, well, maybe Kelly will be a good influence. It's like, oh, no, 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 no. Craig is going to be a bad influence. Like, I mean, yeah. I really do think it was his helping her that made her feel like she needed to get all this plastic surgery and... There is at least one case that he was potentially sleeping around on her with. So in 1999 or 2001, there's conflicting reports about when exactly Craig met this woman. But in either one of those times, Craig met a beautiful young woman named Melissa James in Panama City, Florida, while he was competing there. So Melissa's mother believed that it was 2001. Melissa was a gifted 23-year-old dancer at the time who had opened her own dance studio. 
She was lithe and vibrant with thick, dark hair and piercing blue eyes. She was in, you know, beautiful shape. I mean, dancer's body. Melissa's best friend said that she was immediately taken with Craig. He was big, buff, famous, wealthy, and lived in California, which was a place that she always wanted to live. She was into it. Like as grossed out as you are by the manly muscle men, that was her type. She was like all about it. Yeah. Her best friend is on the 48 Hours Mystery and the host asks her, like, did you meet Craig? What did you think of him? And she's like, he was really big, like really scary big. I just don't even know how you like hug him. Yeah. I feel like I would only, I wouldn't even be able to get my arms around like the, and I have long arms and I feel like I still (laughs) wouldn't be able to like get halfway around him from all the muscles. I think that some women like feeling small and protected maybe. I don't know. It's not really my thing either. So I don't know. It was her thing. She was into it. They ended up striking up some sort of relationship. Now, the details of what kind of relationship is pretty murky. While Melissa's loved one knew that there was for sure an attraction, it seemed like the relationship was actually more of a friendship mentor type of thing because Craig was a lot older than Melissa And Melissa was hoping to break into fitness modeling and acting. So she was looking at him, this guy who had been on all these covers of magazines and was making a living modeling and doing fitness competitions as somebody that could help her break into the business. And and that was at least the impression that her family had about their relationship. Okay. In 2001, Craig asked Melissa to move out to California to live with him and Kelly and work as their assistant. Uh... (laughs) Can you imagine? Squeeze me? If Dan was like at a gig and he's like, met a dancer, met this 23 year old up and coming drummer, dancer, whatever, like musician, (laughs) she's gonna move in with us and be our assistant. No, sir, that is not happening. I could not imagine. No, I'd be like, if you think that's happening, you just don't come home. You you could stay. You could stay wherever you are with this person. Oh my God. What did Miss Wifey say? She agreed, apparently, because Melissa moved to Venice Beach and moved in with the couple. And this is where the trouble began. Obviously. Yeah. So let's talk about Melissa. Melissa was born on March 23rd in 1977. In Florida, to a homemaker mother and a car salesman father, she had a passion and a talent for dance very early on. She had natural grace and rhythm and really did everything. She was a classically trained ballerina, but she also did, you know, tap, jazz, hip-hop style dancing, everything. Melissa was a popular and pretty cheerleader who got a job as a dance instructor right out of high school. She also took business administration courses at the local community college to prepare her to open her own dance studio, which she did at the young age of 19. Whoa. Very good on her. She also had a promising modeling career. She did a lot of billboard modeling in swimwear for a popular swimwear shop in Panama City. She acted in commercials. And her parents even said that she modeled for big brands like Hawaiian Tropic and Calvin Klein. Whoa. And her parents also said that she was in a commercial for MTV with VJ Jamie Kennedy at during this era as well. (laughs) (laughs) Jamie Kennedy. (gasps) But as hard as Melissa was working, she also liked to play hard. She really did like to partay. But soon... That partying kind of edged into some addiction issues. Okay. 
And Melissa decided that she needed a whole change of scenery. And she wanted to move to a place where there would be more performing opportunities. And that's when she hit up Craig for advice about how she could get out of Florida, get to LA and start acting and modeling. And he was like, come on out. You can be our assistant until you start scoring, you know, gigs. What did they pay her to be their assistant? I do not know, actually. I don't know. There's an an arrangement later on that we'll talk about when they move. But at this point, I don't know if it was like a room and board thing or what. Room and board and services. Yes. So she left the studio in the hands of her employees. She moved to LA in mid-2001 to live with and work for Kelly and Craig. Melissa was known as the couple's assistant, but there were rumors that all three might have been much closer than that. And to be fair, these rumors were not limited to Melissa. Kelly and Craig started to become known not just for their rock-hard bods, but also for their rocking parties. Andy, I love the convenience of online shopping, but sometimes that convenience comes with caveats. Absolutely. Online shopping can be a total mystery, especially when it comes to something like shoes. Yep. How accurate is the sizing? Are they actually as comfortable as they look? What happens if I want to send them back? Well, Rothy's takes the guesswork out of shoe shopping with comfort right out of the box and super easy and free returns and exchanges. From the unbeatable comfort to the fact that you can wash them, what more evidence do you need that Rothy's shoes check every box? I honestly cannot believe that you can just throw them in the wash. I mean, it's a complete game changer. Oh my gosh, yeah. And the fact that they are so, so cute, but also so comfortable. Solve the case of your next favorite spring shoe with Rothy's. Plus, get $20 off your first purchase at rothys.com slash lovemurder. That's $20 off at R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash lovemurder. Want to hear something that's truly gruesome? Nine out of 10 Americans suffer from some type of gut issue. Gas, bloating, diarrhea, acid reflux. They're so common that most people think it's just a normal part of life. But with 80% of your immune system living in your gut, any gut problem can make it harder for your body to keep you healthy. And these days, the last thing any of us want is to get sick. Probiotics are supposed to be an easy way to support your gut and immune system, But according to research, 99.9% of the probiotics on the market die in your naturally harsh stomach acid before they even get to where they're needed. This is what makes Just Thrive Probiotic so revolutionary. Their proprietary formula is designed by nature to protect itself when conditions get rough. In fact, studies have proven that Just Thrive Probiotic arrives 100% alive in your gut making them uniquely effective at controlling gas, constipation, and bloating, and providing much-needed immune support. It's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO, and safe for just about anyone at any age, including kids and moms-to-be. Plus, it's been loudly endorsed by some of the biggest health luminaries on the planet. So, if you're looking to give your body the crucial immune and digestive support it needs so you can feel your absolute best, there's nothing like the award-winning Just Thrive probiotic. Get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code LOVEMURDER at checkout. Okay, Andy, you know I love mobile games, but the thing they're always missing is a story. And you know I'm totally here for a great narrative. Oh yeah, match three games can be a lot of fun, but it seems like most of them are the same. The themes and the characters change, but overall it's the same boring format. Until now. 
Switchcraft is a brand new take on Match 3 Games. As you play, you unlock pieces of a beautiful, magical, and gripping graphic novel. Switchcraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing, choose-your-own-adventure-style narrative, and thousands of magical Match 3 levels. Yeah, Switchcraft is exactly what I've been looking for. All of that awesome Match 3 gameplay, but it's set in this incredibly compelling setting and story. And I have been playing for months now. I cannot put it down. They also do really fun things. Like they have this thing called Frog Finals. And every once in a while, you have this like meditation where you get like free bonuses. And it's really exciting. In Switchcraft, you take on the role of a witch at Pendle Hill, the world's top academy of witchcraft, Play your way through hundreds of enchanting match three levels, revealing a dark and winding mystery story. It all starts with the disappearance of your best friend. Now it's up to you to unravel the mystery of her disappearance using your magical match three skills. Along the way, you'll find unique characters, a gripping story, and even a little romance. The best part is that your choices in the game determine the outcome of the story, so you're in the driver's seat. Download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery. I was going to say, like, you're moving to L.A. to, like, get away from partying. I know. No, not exactly the place you want to go. In the Venice apartment they shared after their wedding, wild sex and drug parties were reportedly being thrown. How often? It sounds like frequently. (laughs) The apartment became known as a swingers pad by the bodybuilding community, though no one knew or would publicly comment on exactly what went down at these parties. What happens in Venice stays in Venice. (laughs) It's the pump. It has you coming all day. So it happens when you're just all (laughs) fucking yoked up and horny to go, maybe. Yoked up. Oh, my God. Craig denied some rumors to some of his friends in the industry that he and Kelly were especially fond of three-way romps with other women, but later some evidence would suggest otherwise. A videotape came out later on that showed a party in which a couple was having sex at their apartment, like during an ongoing party. And another part of the same videotape showed one topless woman getting a lap dance from another topless woman. Oh. One of the women was Melissa. And though the other one was not Kelly, you could hear Kelly's voice speaking on the phone just out of frame. So clearly she was in the room, knew what was going on, you know? But just taking a phone call. (laughs) (laughs) Casually taking a phone call during a sexy lap dance scene. So strange. So, yes, something was definitely going down. I think that the bodybuilders that were maybe involved in it didn't want to say because no one was saying exactly what happened at these little soirees. Craig later said that Melissa enjoyed that type of lifestyle, especially the drugs, a little too much. And while she was in LA, she got hooked on meth. Oh. Yeah. So that was not great. So she ended up having to go back to Florida to help organize her dance studio's big recital. And she decided to to stay there for several months after and get a break from LA now. So she did that. And when she came home, she didn't seem that off to the people who loved her. They didn't notice that there was a big problem. And as far as what had happened and why she was staying and not going back to LA, she told people that it just really hadn't worked out that well and that she was totally fine. 
it was fine. It had been a fine learning experience, but she was happy to be back in Florida. Okay. There was speculation that Melissa was far from the only one in the house having issues with drugs. And one of Craig's bodybuilder friends said that he was abusing more than just steroids. He had become hooked on a painkiller called Nubane. Growing frustrated with what they deemed the backstabbing bodybuilding scene of Venice Beach, Kelly and Craig decided to move to Las Vegas. Oh, God. In 2002, they bought a 3,000-square-foot, five-bedroom home. I mean, I think they also moved because it's cheaper, way cheaper to live in Vegas. It's also such Uh, a party city. Such a party city. I mean, they're not, they're kind of out of the frying pan and into the fire here. Yeah. They also had a custom-built state-of-the-art gym, and they began to consider what kind of life they wanted after retiring from competing. So they're both in their 30s at this point. Kelly was in her early 30s, and Craig was pushing 40. They were both still getting paid a crap ton to appear at conventions, do endorsement deals, do magazine ads and covers, paid appearances. And they also began to throw these very popular after-competition parties in Vegas. So despite the fact that Craig was likely never going to win another title, they were still training and they were raking in the dough. They really liked Vegas, too. The party scene did appeal to them. And Kelly bought a sweet, bright red 2003 Jaguar to zip around the desert in. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Kelly was still considered a contender in 2004 and even landed Iron Man Magazine's cover in the same issue Craig had a two-page ad spread for the supplement Xenadrine. Oh, I remember those. I do too. Those ads were everywhere. Yeah. Wow. However, only one year later, in 2005, things were starting to dry up. Their after-parties popularity were steeply declining. There was some allegations of sexual assault and there was rampant drug use happening at these parties. Yeah. Craig was all but finished and after another second place showing at an international event, Kelly was growing very bitter and frustrated as well. They even went on a bodybuilding talk like talk radio show and talked about how the judging was totally unfair and how, I guess, one of the judges had made some comments to Oxygen Magazine about how Kelly wasn't going to win a title because of her physique. And they kind of went off on this radio show and they said that they were going to start their own women's division because the whole thing was a crock. And they were maybe thinking about getting out of competing altogether and opening a clothing store for sports apparel called Ice Gear and More. So around this time that they're thinking of starting the store, they're thinking of getting out of competing, Melissa James had officially lost her dance studio. I guess the numbers had dwindled when she was away in LA, things had faltered. So she went out of business and she was really feeling the lack of opportunities in Florida. Apparently at this time she was working as, she was maybe working in a Gold's Gym or something at this point. She had let Craig know that she was falling on hard times and he extended an offer to her. Melissa could move into the five-bedroom Vegas home with him and Kelly and they would provide her room and board while she helped them get the store running. Once the store was opened, she would manage it and she would receive a salary. 
Melissa happily accepted, but once she moved in in October of 2005, the old tensions came rushing right back to the surface. One of Kelly's best friends said that Kelly absolutely hated Melissa. Oh, no. Kelly had told this friend, Megan, that something had happened in their shared past. She didn't like or trust Melissa, and she was upset that Craig had invited her to live in their house. I'd say. Absolutely. Megan also reported that Craig did not help matters. He would do things like give Melissa money to go get her nails done (gasps) and be like, don't tell Kelly that I gave you this money for a pedicure. And then she would come in and Kelly would be like, well, where'd you go get your nails done? Or they look nice. And Craig would then say after he told Melissa not to tell her, oh, I paid for that. Doesn't she look good? Oh, wow. Which was just such a slap in the face. And a lot of people said that Kelly's self-confidence was completely eroded by now. Obviously, she's going through all of these plastic surgeries. She's always in second place. It seems like obviously Craig hasn't really stopped his womanizing ways. And now she has this younger, beautiful woman living in her house. And her husband is like, well, doesn't she look nice? Or look what I did for her. I bought her, made sure she could get a mani-pedi, you know? Yeah, no, that's not okay. Yeah, it's definitely not okay. Despite the drama, Melissa always seemed upbeat when she spoke to her mother. She was genuinely excited about the store, and she also planned to finish her college degree while she was in Vegas. She did complain about Kelly and Craig's constant fighting, and her mother, Mora, noticed that she had lost a lot of weight when she sent her some recent photos. It looked like she was losing a lot of weight. So she wasn't sure, even though every time she talked to Melissa, Melissa seemed pretty upbeat. She got a feeling that maybe something actually wasn't going well in Vegas at this time. Yeah. I mean, I think people doing meth can sound upbeat. Yeah. It's probably part of it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. So she figured though, Melissa's mother, that she would see her soon enough because Melissa had booked a December 14th flight home to have an extended Christmas vacation with her mother, Mora in New Jersey. Mora said that Melissa was super family oriented and she loved the Christmas holiday. There was no way that she would have ever missed it. The entire James family was very excited to be reunited. Well, that day, December 14th, 2005, ended very differently than anyone could have ever expected. It was on that cold, dark morning that a volunteer firefighter discovered a burning bright red 2003 Jaguar and the charred corpse within. When the police reached the scene, they pried open the trunk lid and discovered burned scraps of a fleece blanket that was dyed purple, blue, and black, as well as another blanket in a tiger print. And it was wrapped around the body, kind of like swaddled. Okay. Inside lay the body clad in a blue hoodie and jeans and underpants, no bra. No face was visible, but the victim was wearing a metal bracelet around their wrist and a wire had been wrapped around their neck like a ligature. Ah. Based on the clothing, jewelry, and the size of the burned body, it was believed to be a young woman or perhaps an older girl. Unfortunately, no identification was able to be salvaged. There was obviously not a driver's license in the car anywhere that was saved. 
And the VIN number and the license plate had actually been melted by the blaze as well. Whoa. I was going to say, I'm shocked that the blankets are still identifiable. Yeah, there was just these fragments, these burned fragments where they could see what the blankets had been. However, Dick Draper, firefighter hero and fast thinker that he is, had actually jotted down the license plate number before the flames could melt the entire plate. Whoa. After a quick check with the DMV, the police discovered that the Jaguar was registered to Kelly Ann Ryan, a 33-year-old woman who lived on Adobe Arch Road in Las Vegas. So they obviously think that that is for sure the victim. So they go over to the address to deliver the grim news to Craig. When they knocked on the door, an attractive woman did answer. And the detectives were a little surprised when she introduced herself as... Kelly. Kelly Ann Ryan. Fly and Ryan. Fly and Ryan. So they're thinking, wait, if you're standing in front of us... Who the hell is the murdered and burned woman in your car, lady? Yeah. Meanwhile, Maura James was across the country trying to figure out where on earth her daughter could be. After checking with an agent at the airport, she knew that Melissa's flight had landed on time, but she was nowhere to be found and wasn't answering her cell phone. After checking the baggage claim, she circled back to the Delta agent who said that Melissa James had been ticketed for the flight but had never boarded. Okay. She hadn't been on the Atlanta to New Jersey leg and not the Vegas to Atlanta one before that. Yep. Mora was beginning to panic. Where on earth could Melissa be? After Melissa failed to answer any of Mora's increasingly frantic calls, she tried to call Craig Titus, but he too wasn't picking up the phone. So she started thinking that something might've happened to both of them. Okay. Yeah, panic. I mean, totally panicking. Sheer panic. Well, Craig wasn't able to answer the phone because he was being interviewed by the police. So when the investigators told Kelly and Craig that the Jaguar had been found in Fuego in the desert, she was like, oh my God, that is so crazy. You know what? I was just about to call you guys because it was stolen. Oops. You should have called before they came to your door. Mm Mm-hmm. To Kelly's acting credit, she did appear shocked, the police said, when they informed her that a corpse had been found in her allegedly stolen car. But then it was time for surprise number two for the police when Craig and Kelly said, you know what, we think we know who that body could be. They just were like, you know what, it's probably this person, Melissa James, We used to employ her. She's very troubled. She's addicted to drugs. She was working for room and board until our new clothing store could open. But the situation was getting really, really bad. They said that Melissa was stealing from them so that she could fund her drug addiction. Okay. And after a bad fight in which they had confronted her, Melissa had spent the night at a hotel so everyone could get their space. When she returned, though, the fighting continued. So Craig had finally booked Melissa a one-way ticket home and told her to get lost. Kelly offered to give Melissa a ride in the Jaguar to the airport around 3.30 p.m., despite the fact that Melissa's flight didn't leave until 10 p.m. This is the evening before the body was found. But she said that she got only as far as the convenience store on their corner before Melissa demanded to be let out. So she got out, she got her suitcase out, and... Kelly said she just took off. She doesn't know where Melissa was going. And that was absolutely the last time she saw her. 
And then the car was conveniently stolen that night. Indeed. Okay. (laughs) Just making sure. Kelly claimed that the couple, she went home. She said Craig ran some errands and then he came back. They entertained her friend Megan and Megan's fiance until two in the morning. She said she woke up at five in the morning to walk their dog and discovered that the Jaguar had been stolen at five in the morning. She says she realizes Mm -hmm. this. Kelly and Craig speculated that Melissa had lifted the car keys from a basket that they kept on the stairs because that's always where the keys were kept. Okay. They said that they thought this because Melissa knew where the keys were and they were now missing. As for who could possibly want this beautiful young woman dead, the couple could only say that she had a sketchy boyfriend and relationships with drug dealers. When the investigators asked where Kelly thought Melissa might have gone after she stole the car, Kelly stammered, I don't know, maybe Walmart? What? Which was a very weird thing to say. The police searched Melissa's room where they found Kelly's credit card, which made Kelly and Craig go like, oh, see, there she she was stealing from me. Look at my credit card being found in her room. They also found a number of bloody syringes. Oof. Before they left, they interviewed Craig separately and he admitted that he had indeed been having an affair with Melissa. And he said that his wife did not know about it, that they were fighting about other things. It, It was not about the infidelity. The police do not buy a word of this BS. Of either of their BS? Either. This story stinks to high heaven. They're like, okay. If somebody is stealing from you, if somebody is using hard drugs in your house and stealing your money to fund that lifestyle, would you book them a hotel? Would you give them another chance? Would you buy them a flight home? You'd be like, no, I'm going to press charges. Please get out of my house right now. Good luck getting yourself home. Yeah. Also, if you realized your Jaguar was stolen, most likely by the person you are now claiming was a thieving drug addict, (laughs) you wouldn't report it? I know. So none of this is making any sense to the police. The autopsy was performed and the pathologist discovered that while Melissa was charred on over 70% of her body, some signs of what the poor woman had gone through were still clear. Oh God. There was not only the wire around her neck, but another cloth ligature that was wound very tightly as well. Okay. Unfortunately, the fire had destroyed the flesh around the ligatures, so they were unable to really ascertain if there was any bruising that was consistent with strangulation. Okay. While inspecting the badly burned face, the pathologist discovered that what he had thought was essentially melted flesh was instead duct tape that had been entirely wrapped around Melissa's face from above the eyebrows down to her chin. Oh my God. That is horrifying. Yeah. Melissa was still badly burned under the duct tape because the the tape had adhered to some of her bodily fluids and skin. Of course, yeah. So they had to very painstaking remove this at this point. And then it was clear that it was Melissa. You know, she was still, it wasn't perfect by any means, but the duct tape had somewhat preserved her facial features. Oh, wow. Yeah. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough 
to conclusively prove that it was Melissa, they had to call Mora, inform her that her daughter was deceased and ask for dental records. Yeah. Mora did not actually know where Melissa went to the dentist, when she had last been to the dentist. So she was like, I don't have dental records. I don't know what to tell you, but she has a tattoo on her back. It's of this. Can you just use that? And they're like, no, ma'am, we're going to need you to take a DNA sample. But they wouldn't tell her why. So she doesn't even know why they say they can't identify her by this yeah, tattoo, yeah, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. just so heartbreaking to think that you don't know what condition your child is in, no, what condition your child's body is in. Horrifying. Obviously, she found out eventually, but I just, as a parent, cannot imagine getting that call, being told that a tattoo was not going to work for identification, and they yeah. didn't tell me why. Yeah. So they did eventually use Mora's DNA to confirm that it was indeed her daughter, unfortunately. Moving on, the pathologist found that Melissa's lungs were filled with fluid. This type of edema can be caused by a drug overdose or serious intoxication by opiates like morphine or heroin. When tested, Melissa's blood ended up having both morphine and heroin at a lethal level. Huh. A test of her hair revealed presence of meth as well. And I guess where it was in her hair or how it was in her hair and the way it was tested was a sign that she was a chronic user of that drug. Okay. So they have no idea what could have actually killed her because it could have been any number of things. Yeah. It could be asphyxiation from the tape across her face. It could be a drug overdose, clearly. It could be the strangulation. Or even being burned in the fire. Yeah. yeah. They said that her lungs, other than the edema, were clear of smokes. So they know it wasn't smoke inhalation. Okay. While the pathologist was trying to narrow it down, the investigators were checking Kelly, Melissa, and Craig's phone records. And what Kelly and Craig said was not quite adding up. Craig had told investigators that after they realized the Jaguar was missing, he had texted Melissa to ask her where the car was. And he had also called a friend named Anthony Gross to try to maybe have him come over and they were going to drive around and look for it. Okay. But the couple said that they discovered the Jaguar missing at five in the morning. The text to Melissa was at 4.28 a.m. And the calls to Anthony were between 2.30 and 3.20 in the morning. Huh. So that's far before yeah. they said that they knew. Uh-huh. The police also discovered that Anthony owned a gray pickup truck and it was exactly like one that an eyewitness had noticed driving practically bumper to bumper with a red Jaguar around almost exactly where the Jaguar was ultimately found. Oh, wow. In the middle of nowhere. In the middle of nowhere. And it was it was noticeable because it's also, I think, four in the morning at this point or four, four thirty in the morning. So there wasn't a lot of people on the road. Yeah. So it would be noticeable that there was a gray pickup truck driving extremely close to a red Jaguar, which yeah. you're going to notice. Uh-huh. And the truck driver who actually called in the fire said that he also saw a gray pickup truck coming back towards Las Vegas, seemingly from the direction of the fire. Okay. So this is where the gray pickup truck is important. So they have Anthony Gross. They know that he talked to Craig Titus or there was calls placed between 2.30 and 3.20. And then Anthony Gross had called him back at 4.20 in the morning. Okay. And now he has this, this truck as well. 
So they went to interview Anthony, and Anthony was a pretty young guy. He was in his early 20s. He was apparently a big fan of Craig's. He wanted to get into bodybuilding, and he had been wanting Craig to help him train. Okay. So he's kind of a disciple of his in some way. So his family immediately got him a criminal defense attorney and said they weren't talking. Okay. So they know that he's involved somehow because they lawyered up real fast, yep. which not necessarily means he's guilty or anything, but it's the truck and yep. the phone calls, et cetera. Yep. So they followed up on another tip that had been called in. And this was from a woman named Mandy, who was a close friend of Kelly's. And she was actually a training partner of Kelly's. So she said that on the day that the police interviewed Craig and Kelly, the day that the body was discovered, Craig had actually called her in a panic. And this was weird because Craig never called her. Her relationship was with Kelly. Okay. And they seemed really nervous and they asked if they could come over. And she was like, well, you guys can come over at 6 p.m. Does that work for you? And they ended up showing up at 5 p.m. And they were really hysterical and just very out of it. And Kelly said that her car had been stolen and then it had been set on fire. And then the police had found a body in it and they think it belongs to their assistant. So Mandy is like, whoa, 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 whoa. What the hell is going on here? But she said Kelly wasn't really making much sense until at one point Craig was like, I really want to get Chinese food. I'm going to call and order it. And why don't you girls go pick it up? So they got a chance to be alone. And when they were alone, then Kelly was like, okay, so I do know what happened to Melissa. I just didn't want to say anything in front of Craig. We found her dead of an overdose and we panicked and we decided to put her in my car and burn it in the desert to get rid of the evidence because we didn't want the word to get out that a woman had OD'd in our house because I thought that it would ruin my career and Craig thought it was going to ruin my career. So we just thought that that was the best course of action, but it was so stupid. And she said, quote, now I'm totally fucked because I bought seven bottles of lighter fluid at Walmart with my own credit card. Oh my God. Rule number one, girl, you don't use your credit card at Walmart where there's cameras everywhere. And you already, and you pitched that to the cops. She said Walmart. She said Walmart. So here's what I think is going on here. Well, actually, you know, I'll get to it in a second because there's going to be a whole Walmart section where we'll talk about this at length and then I will get to my theory about this. (laughs) So Mandy at this point, her head is spinning because she's like, these people are at my house. We're going to get Chinese food and bring it back like nothing's wrong when they just told me that some woman OD'd in their house and then they tried to dispose of her body by setting her on fire in a luxury car in the desert. So she's completely (laughs) shaken and doesn't even know what to do at this point. So they get back and they're like, we can't go back to our house. The cops are are all over us. Can we just stay the night? And they had, it sounded like a one bedroom or studio apartment because Kelly and Craig ended up crashing on their floor that night, like their bedroom floor. So strange. This is so, so strange. And so the next day they were like, well, you know, can we stay another night? And her and her boyfriend were like, no, you must go. You have to leave. And they asked if they would check them into a hotel with the boyfriend's name. (gasps) And the boyfriend was like, no, I'm not going to do that. 
I'm not comfortable with it. And Craig got really pissed. He was really mad too, because there was this other friend that he had wanted to stay the night at his house and he wouldn't let him. And this is actually hilarious. The other friend who said no way, Jose, to them coming to his house was a guy named Jeffrey Schwimmer, who, yes, is the first cousin of David Schwimmer, the friend star. (laughs) He really, really is. Wow. Isn't that like what a world we live in? What a time. Wow. Yeah. He's on the 48 hours too. He has a really nice house. Apparently he's a very wealthy businessman. And I think he's actually quite a looker. I think he's cuter than David, to be honest. Yeah. David's not that cute. (laughs) So nobody likes Ross. (laughs) It's Ross, actually. It turns out that they end up giving them money to check into a Holiday Inn, which was a different hotel than they originally wanted because most hotels require a credit card and they didn't want to give their name. Yeah, but like murderers can't be choosers, you know? No, no. So (laughs) Mandy is telling the police all about this. Only a day or so after this interview, Anthony Gross did decide to talk with his attorney present and he admitted that Craig had called him for no questions asked help. Anthony had been with his girlfriend and he had missed the first three calls, but agreed to help out when he ended up calling him back at 4.20 in the morning. Jesus. Craig told him to fill a gas can and then follow Kelly's Jaguar out to the desert with him and Kelly. When they arrived at the desolate side of the road, Craig told him to park this far away from the Jaguar and Kelly jumped into Anthony's pickup trunk with him. Well, Craig doused the car with lighter fluid and gas and set it on fire. So he could have not even known there was a body in it. He said he did not know. And I think the police did believe him. Okay. That he did not know that there was actually a body in the car. So he said that he didn't even know really what was going on, that they were going to set this car on fire until it was up in flames. And he's looking into the rearview mirror and he's like, oh, shit. I have a really bad feeling that I just participated in something that's bad. Because if you're asked to go get gas and follow someone, it could be that they're running out of gas as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like a normal person. So he said at that point he knew something bad was going on. And then he saw a news report that a woman's body had been found in a burning Jaguar. No wonder he's worried about. And yeah, that's when he's like, oh, I fucked up. He did end up also getting charged with <gasps> accessory to this crime no. because of it. Yeah, but he was let out with probation, essentially. So he didn't have to serve time because of it. Whoa. This was not... Ask questions. There's no such things as no questions asked help. You have to ask questions, friends. Yeah, I guess when someone prefaces it in that way. <laughs> yeah, then you should know. Don't do it's it. It's not like, hey, dude, I need help. I need you to follow this car with a, a thing of a can of gas. Like, it's like... But if they're like, I need your help, no questions asked. Do you agree? Blink three times. (laughs) Yeah, that's a bad sign. Gathering more evidence, they found a 24-hour Walmart that was only a quarter of a mile away from Craig and Kelly's house. So they ran Kelly's credit card against Walmart's records and found that she had purchased. Oh, God. A bottle of juice, a barbecue tool set, and oh, just seven 64-ounce bottles of lighter fluid. Why did you need the gas, too? 
That's a lot of lighter fluid. Also, this was casually done at 3.31 in the morning. Oh, my God. Which I think is kind of hilarious that she threw the barbecue tool set in. Like, <laughs> she's like, but she, I think she was probably trying to make it look like she was going to use the lighter fluid on a barbecue, right? Yes, that's what she's thinking. She's like, okay, I need all this lighter fluid, but it's got to look natural. So let's throw some barbecue tool kit in. And then they'll never have any idea that I'm just, you'll never know. I'm just throwing a really big barbecue at 3.30 in the morning, as one does. Wow. So they pulled the security footage and there's Kelly in a red sweatsuit just strolling around Walmart for about 10 minutes. When she left, the exterior <sighs> security cameras caught Craig Titus helping her load the bags into the Jaguar just past like 3.34, I think, around that time in the morning. And he's loading them into the back seat, not the trunk. Now, why would he do that? Hmm. Because there's a body in the trunk. Oh, my God. It's in the fucking car? Yes, that's why. Why else would he put a bunch of lighter fluid in his back seat instead well, of his I don't know. Trunk? I don't know if I. Wow. Wow. So here's also my theory about the whole Walmart weird thing. They said that they found later, the police found the red jumpsuit that Kelly was wearing in the Walmart footage. These women were roughly the same size. Okay. So with planting the credit card that was used and the sweatsuit that was actually Melissa's, but Kelly had put it on, Ugh. I think they were trying to make a cockamamie yep. Yep. setup that she had somehow bought all of this stuff for her own demise somehow. Yeah. That's gross. Which is super gross and doesn't even make sense. And that's why she said, I don't know, to Walmart. Walmart. Yep, yep, yep. Which also, why would you know that? <laughs> yeah, but they're, you know. They're not so bright. Yeah. Not so bright, these two. They've got enough to arrest these buff buttholes now, but naturally, they're on the run, Andy. They're Gonesville. No! They split. But they told some of Craig's friends where they were going before they left. As one who's on the lamb does. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so they told some of Craig's friends that they were going to Boston. They said that there was a friend of theirs in Boston who was going to give them some money so that they could leave the country. Wow. That's the plan. So they tracked down the couple near Boston at a Jiffy Lube. In Canton, Massachusetts. Are you serious? That was where they found them. They So they didn't immediately arrest them, but that's where they located them before <gasps> they called for backup. No. At a Jiffy Lube in Dan's hometown. Oh my goodness. They went Down far. The, they went really far. And the guy at the Jiffy Lube said that Titus was... Fantastic. He was a really nice guy. Apparently, he had picked up some, I don't even remember what it was, maybe some hand sanitizer or something. He had like grabbed something. Oh, no, this was so weird. It was a lint roller. So it must have been like a Jeffy, Jeffy Lube connected to some sort of convenience store or something. Okay. 
And he had grabbed a lint roller and he came back and said, oh my gosh, I accidentally took this. I didn't pay for it. Can I pay for it now? Like, and the guy had no idea that he had even taken it. So he was like, wow, that guy was really like huge and nice and honest. So nobody at the Jiffy Loop thought that they were dealing with runaway murderers at this oh, point. So now- my God. The FBI, of course, was involved. So they've got eyeballs on them and they follow them to a nail salon in Stoughton in a, apparently a plaza that has a Shaw's. Oh my God. Shout out to Town Spa Pizza. That pizza is so good. Mm -hmm. So they go into the nail salon, the FBI, (sighs) and they arrested Kelly while she was getting a cherry red pedicure. Oh my God. You're on the run, bitch. What are you doing? She's like, I just really miss my hagwire and I want some red (laughs) toenails. To remind me of what I've lost. Uh, And Craig, they apprehended him as well. He was just sitting in the pickup truck outside of the nail salon. Wow. I am also dying about these people who commit these murders in Vegas and then they end up running to Boston because Margaret Rudin also was a Vegas case and she ended up outside of Boston. She ended up in Southie, I think. Boston's also like a lot closer to the border. Like you can run right up to Canada. That's a very good point. I also also think that people in Boston aren't going to rat on you. If you're close with them, I feel like if you're like a stranger with it, I guess they went to the cops though. They went to the cops. They're not going to tell anyone. They're like, live your life. I don't know. Everyone who was in the the Margaret Rudin story was like, she was a nice lady. I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fucking cops. <laughs> Fucking cops. I'm not going to tell them shit. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, also, meanwhile, Whitey Bulger's piecing out of Boston, going to Santa Monica and not getting caught for like 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Go <laughs> west. Go west. <laughs> Okay, so while they were in jail in Massachusetts, the FBI questioned the couple separately. Craig copped to a sexual relationship with Melissa. And this time he also claimed that he and his wife had engaged in three-way sex with Melissa. Okay, makes sense. Yes. But he said that he and Kelly did not kill Melissa. He was emphatic about that. He said that she had simply OD'd and they had panicked. In the FBI transcripts, Craig comes across as arrogant, completely unrepentant, and like a total scumbag. Oh, God. It's impressive. Really a trifecta. (laughs) He said that he found Melissa's body in the Jaguar in their garage with the needle still in her arm. He said that she was, quote, in the fucking car, dead, stinking up my fucking car. Wow. Wow, that is a extremely gross way to talk about someone that was supposed to matter to you. Yeah, that you were intimate with. Indeed. Going on, he said, and this was outlined in Michael Fleeman's book, Killer Bodies, panicked and feeling fucking ruined, not to mention angry that my car's ruined, Ugh. Craig decided to put her in the trunk, set fire to the car, and play stupid. He admitted that the process was fucking gross. These are all his words. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, we're not aghast at an F-bomb around here at Love Murder. He put her in the fetal position, wrapped her up in a blanket, tape, wire, and his bathrobe belt. So that's his explanation for the ligatures. And shoved her in the Jaguar trunk, all while Kelly cried hysterically. 
Asked why he did it, Craig insisted that he had had no choice. He had to spare Kelly from bad publicity. She is the number one fitness athlete in the world, Craig said. Highly respected in the sport. And if you think of fitness, Kelly Ryan is who you think of, period. And here we walk into our garage and our friends O'Dayed in our fucking car. So yeah, if that gets out in the public, we're ruined. I think she was actually number two. (laughs) So... But you know. thanks, Andy. Yeah. They were charged with murder and extradited back to Las Vegas. But the prosecutor was facing an uphill battle. The pathologist could not conclude that Melissa had definitely died by homicide. It was entirely possible based on her tox report that the overdose could have been what killed her. There was no eyewitnesses. There was no murder weapon. Nor was there any evidence in Kelly and Craig's home that a murder or even assault had occurred. Okay. They needed something. And luckily, that something was just about to fall into their laps. Kelly's friend, Megan, came forward after they, the couple was apprehended in Massachusetts with some very important information. Pretty blonde Megan had idolized Flying Ryan, who eventually became her coach, training partner, and best friend. This was a situation in which Megan had actually lived across the country before, but she reached out to Kelly as far as asking about like mentorship and coaching opportunities and moved to Las Vegas to train with Kelly. Okay. Throughout the training, they became extremely close. Like I said, she was actually supposed to be the matron of honor at Megan's upcoming wedding. Oh, wow. So Megan said that the day before the Jaguar was found, so the day in which they killed Melissa, Kelly had confessed what had really happened and it was chilling. Oh God. Kelly said that after the night in the hotel, Melissa came back and instead of having it cooled down the whole situation, Melissa came in guns blazing and ready to attack Kelly. This is what Kelly said. Now, the other thing about this hotel stay was that Craig admitted that he told Kelly that he was taking Melissa to the hotel for everyone to calm down and that he was going to confront Melissa about the drug use and the theft while he was at the hotel with her. Instead, he had sex with her. Figured. So Kelly doesn't know this. So that's not part of the story that she's telling Megan at this point, but that's really what happened. So she's saying that after Melissa came home, she came upstairs and she attacked Kelly with a taser. Kelly fought her off and then grabbed the taser and fired into the back of Melissa's neck, which is so brutal. However, Melissa kept fighting, so Kelly then screamed for Craig, who carried Melissa into the living room and body slammed her into the floor and started to beat the shit out of her. You've seen the pictures of this man. He is 270 pounds of pure muscle, and Melissa is maybe 110, 120 pounds. This is terrifying. Yeah. Kelly also admitted to Megan that she at this point joined in, that she started punching Melissa in the face, even showing Megan where her knuckles had some small marks from doing that. At some point, Kelly said that Craig had held Melissa down 
and told Kelly to get morphine. Kelly got a huge dose and stuck it in her leg and injected her with the morphine. So that's the overdose right there. Yeah, and not on her own. And not on her own volition. Megan and her now husband, Jeremy, were at Craig and Kelly's during this confession. And Megan said around one in the morning, Craig asked her if she knew how to strangle someone. When she said no, Craig put his giant bicep around her throat and began to squeeze. She said that she she felt her, her breath go out of her. For a second, she was terrified that he was actually going to choke her. And he did like let her go. And he said that was actually how Melissa died. He said that the chokehold started as a joke, that he was fooling around. And that was how she ended up accidentally strangled. According to Megan, he then said, we're really going to miss her. I wish that it didn't have to go down like that. Oh my God. These people did so many abhorrent things to this poor woman that you almost still can't tell what what it was that actually killed her. Whoa. He even told Megan and Jeremy of his plans to take the Jaguar, which FYI, they were like, yeah, uh, her body's in the trunk of the car in our garage right now. Well, these friends are over. And he said, yeah, you know, like after you guys leave in a little bit, we're going to go to the desert and light it on fire. At two in the morning now, feeling pretty shaken and scared, yeah. Megan and Jeremy were trying to act natural. Of course, yeah. we're not going to tell anyone. What, of co- like, they're just trying to get out of there, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, okay, okay, cool, cool, cool. And you guys, can you just like, when you go, take this with you. And he gave them a gym bag. And Megan was like, what is this? He's like, don't worry about it. It's just some stuff I don't want in the house when the cops come. It's not just, you know, put it in your closet. Don't worry about it. So they they took it, they got out of there. And Megan said that she had not come forward until she knew that they were apprehended because she was afraid of, of them coming after her. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I would be too. So at this point, Megan handed over the gym bag to the authorities. Inside were two large elastic exercise bands and a legal weapon called a sap. So it's this, I don't even know how to describe it. It's this eight inch long leather blunt force instrument. And when they, it's like something you hit somebody with and okay. it looks very painful. I guess it's illegal in Nevada. And on the receiving end was Melissa's DNA and on the handle was Craig's DNA. Oh my God. So that, we don't even know what they did to her with that because they didn't admit to it. They didn't tell anyone about that portion of the torture. Jesus. Uh, yeah. They also found an M18 taser. Now, I believe we may have talked about this in a previous case because tasers are very interesting weapons and they are very useful for law enforcement because a taser actually maintains an electronic history of every time it is fired. Oh, no. Yep. And when it's fired, it shoots out more than just electricity. It also shoots out these tiny little invisible tags that leave a trail of evidence the number of the tags shot from tasers vary from taser to taser, from shooting to shooting. So even if a criminal attacks somebody with a taser and wants to try to pick up these tags, they don't actually know how many 
yep. are in every shot. Okay. And furthermore, they're invisible to the naked eye. You can only find them using a black light. Okay. So this is very helpful for law yes. enforcement. Yes. Absolutely. So the police found that the taser had been fired six times in quick succession on December 13th between 2.10 and 2.12. So Kelly definitely attacked Melissa. There wasn't like a pause really where one person had tried to do it and then there was a pause and she got the, it just seemed like Kelly went after her and hit her six times in a two minute interval. When they searched the crime scene again, they found the tags from the taser in the downstairs living room, in the bedroom, and in the dryer. It looks like they had tried to wash some evidence. Okay. And that's how the tags ended up in the dryer. Despite this new information, Kelly and Craig pled not guilty Uh (laughs) and sat in jail. I don't know how you're pleading not guilty this one. And they sat in jail while awaiting trial. Kelly spoke to a bodybuilder friend for publication in a bodybuilding online magazine, apparently, in which she said that she was confident that they were going to get out. She had found God in prison. She was just reading her Bible, praying daily, still completely in love with her husband, that she even talked about how they got to hold each other's hands at some hearing. And that when they got out, they were going to retire from the business and start a family. I don't think so. I bet their lawyer told them to pitch that one. Meanwhile, Craig apparently did what narcissists love to do while they're stewing away in prison. Can you guess what that is? Um, Wrote a book. You know what? He did that too. He did that too. We're going to talk about that later. He did indeed write a book, but he also allegedly tried to get Anthony Gross as well as Megan and Jeremy killed. Oh my God. Narcissists love to try to order a hit from prison. Oh my God, they do. They really do. A man named Nelson Ronald Brady Jr., who had been housed with Craig, was arrested in a sting after he paid $1,500 to an undercover detective to murder the witnesses. Though Craig had been secretly taped discussing a book deal and screenplay with Brady, which the authorities believed were code words for the hits, he was actually never charged because the evidence was not strong enough. They just had these like theories that they were code words that he did not say explicitly anything. And I guess Nelson Ronald Brady must have not rolled on him because they could not end up charging Craig with any of the the, the alleged hit crimes. And just days before the trial was set to begin, both Kelly and Craig made plea deals after several hours of plea negotiations. The negotiations were that long because apparently Craig was trying to make Kelly's sentence as light as possible. He wanted to take all the blame and do all the time, which is nice, but that's not how our legal system works. You can't be like, please, can I take her sentence for her, you know? But they did try to work out some sort of deal. So Kelly did still get off really, really light. On August 22nd, 2008, Craig pled guilty to second degree murder, kidnapping and arson and was sentenced to 21 to 55 years in prison. His earliest possible parole date is in 2026. Kelly entered an Alford plea, which we have talked about before, which means you say that you're innocent, but the the state has enough to prove a case against you. 
And she copped to one count of arson and one count of battery with a deadly weapon. She was sentenced to six to 26 years collectively for both offenses. How did they both have that short of time? I guess that was just the deal, the the deal. Wow. Wow. I still don't know if the prosecution was sure that they had an airtake case. Okay. You know, it seems pretty obvious to us clearly, but I think maybe legally the testimony of the witnesses was hearsay. I don't know. Yeah, obviously I'm not a lawyer. So for whatever reason, this was the deal. And it was a pretty good deal, I think, for both of them. I think so too. During their sentencing, Kelly wept and apologized to Melissa's loved one. So that's on the 48 hours too. And she, she does seem very genuinely distraught. She and Craig, during their sentencing, both made mention of a lot of drugs going on, even when they were doing the cover-up stuff. They were on a lot of drugs, apparently, which makes sense because that cover-up was piss poor. Yeah. But Kelly did seem really upset, not just that she was going to jail, but she seemed like she regretted what she had done. Yeah. But Craig was a huge, huge tool. And at his, like, sentencing, he's even saying that, you know, I'm sorry that I disposed of her body, but not sorry for anything else because I didn't do anything else. Yeah, while you're trying to, like, kill your friends from jail. Yeah. (laughs) In the 48 Hours Mystery, Maura, Melissa's mother, says in one interview, just as God forgives me my sins, I must also forgive them. So I do, which is very generous of her. Wow. But in the very next scene, they cut to Craig's talking head now. And he says, I'm not asking for her forgiveness. I know I'm sorry. I'm sorry Melissa's dead. I'm sorry she tried to kill my wife. Wow. No remorse, sticking to his story, unrepentant assholery. Oh, which also, by the way, there was no evidence of taser marks or anything other than those small bruises on her fist on Kelly. So there's no way that she was ever in danger of her life or felt like Yeah, or attacked, yeah, yeah. Or attacked, exactly. There should have been, if she was attacked with a taser like she said she was to Megan, there was no taser mark on her body. Judge Glass said at the sentencing hearing, Mr. Titus came into this a big man, all kinds of muscles, famous, in control. And you look at him now and you see what he's become. He's nothing, nothing but a murderer. Also, he looks like shit. Really? Like total shit. I mean, Kelly looks completely different. Like she had been that blonde gymnast before the plastic surgery and the plastic surgery altered her looks, but she was naturally a brunette. So also she now looks totally different because she's got her brunette hair. Yeah. But she's still, you know, despite the plastic surgery, she's still an attractive woman. Yeah. I mean, Craig was bald, pale, pudgy. He has this huge gut. I mean, he looked so far away from what he had looked like before. Yeah. In 2009, Kelly filed for divorce from Craig. On October 24th, 2017, she was released from prison after serving nearly 12 years. She has totally disappeared. I mean, I don't know if you guys could find her, but I I couldn't find anything about her whereabouts or what she's up to. She certainly isn't trying to get back into the fitness world. No. But I do hope she's lying low and keeping her nose clean. I don't think she would have 
killed anyone if it had not been for her involvement with Craig Titus. Okay. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I think she was the instigator. I think there was jealousy. There was anger. I think she definitely instigated the fight and Craig finished it. But I don't, I I think maybe that was due to the really toxic nature of their relationship. And drugs. And drugs. But I mean, that being said, if she was in another toxic relationship where drugs were involved, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. So Craig Titus is still locked up where he hopefully will remain for far longer than 2026. He apparently published a book with his side of the story, but it's of course a pile of trash and not even worth me mentioning the title or how you could find it because no one wants to give that man a single dollar. He also was on Write a Prisoner for a little while looking for love and maybe he found it because I did look up to see if he still had a profile and he does not. But if you listen to the crime and sports episode, James Petragallo reads the whole thing at the end of that episode, which I always find very entertaining. So he was looking for love. Who knows? I mean, I hope he didn't sucker some poor woman into being in a relationship with him. But yeah, there's so many sad things about this case. But one thing I was thinking about while I was finishing this episode was what Maura, Melissa's mother, said about the whole media sensation was that her daughter was completely swallowed up in it and that it wasn't about her. She was the innocent victim of these monsters and all of the spotlight was about them yeah. and their competitions yep. and how fit they were and how famous they were and what they're, how legendary they were. And it was just really disconcerting to have Melissa's story be like that. And then, you know, a lot of people in the bodybuilding world were either defending these two or saying, I don't know, who was Melissa? She was a nobody, you know, and it was just really hard. So I think it would be good. You know, we're going to have a couple little Wikipedia fun facts, but to end the main portion of the episode, I think we should really end on the light that Melissa had inside of her, her incredible talent, the way she really did make people in her feel like people in her life feel, which like her best friend said she could go into a room with 20 strangers and come out with 15 new best friends. That's the type of person she was. And the tragedy that she could not break away from this toxic couple and end up turning her life around. And and I hate that. I hate when people aren't given that opportunity to make a better life for themselves. So RIP Melissa it should have gone another way. So I have two things for you, Andy, to Wikipedia fun facts sing about. Wikipedia fun fact. Thank you. Number one, this is technically like a 48 hours mystery fun fact, but Vince Neal of Motley Crue was apparently on a VH1 show with Craig Titus where Craig trained him to get buff. And it seems like either during the course of the show or they kept trading afterwards, Craig shot Vince Neal up with steroids and human growth hormone. Ew. There's so many levels of you on that statement. It was a genuine you. Very genuine. Okay, and now this next. is my favorite one. <laughs> next, the next one is the first ever bodybuilding competition took place, well, the first in modern day times, in 1901, and one of the judges was none other than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote Sherlock. Oh my God, so weird. How did that man get pulled into this? 
That is so strange. The, both of these Why are so they strange. Think? These Why are not fun they? facts. These are Wikipedia strange facts. <laughs> <laughs> no. I don't understand what writing Sherlock has to do with judging physical fitness. I guess maybe they just wanted a celebrity judge. That's so strange. So strange. Okay, those are the facts, kids. <laughs> not fun, just weird this, this week. In conclusion... Pay for your Walmart arson kit with cash, you dumbass. Oh, my God. Also, also, maybe don't agree to do a no questions asked task in the middle of the night at 4.30 a.m. from your roided friend. <laughs> Definitely not, especially when they're like, no questions asked and bring a, bring a can of gas. Yeah. You should usually be able to explain that. You should. It's going to be a no for me, dog. Yeah. As always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one gets murdered. Love you guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.